You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. It's great to be back with you guys today, being out last week. I appreciate uh, Chris Ellis again filling in and teaching. And we are quickly coming to the uh, end of um, our series on the parables. So probably the next three weeks is... uh, um, going to be our, our landing point within the parables, and then after um, our next application Sunday, we'll be jumping into our study in the book of Exodus. So excited about uh, transitioning to that study, but also excited about what the Lord has for us over the next several weeks as we wrap up what we've been learning in the parables. Hopefully it's been insightful for you to learn more about um, who you are and, and what God has in store for you and what God has planned for you and what God has called you to. Um, a lot that we've seen over these weeks in the parables, and um, I'm drawing our attention today uh, to Luke chapter 20, which is maybe a familiar parable to you, maybe not. Um, Certainly had a lot to say to the original hearers at the time, uh, as Jesus spoke this directly to the Jewish leaders, but I think it also echoes so many important truths for us today uh, over 2,000 years later, and so hopefully we'll see that as well. So let's look in uh, Luke chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 1. I want to read to you our text today. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor." Our summary sentence for today, while our sinful inclination is to reject authority in our life in order to act in ways that benefit ourselves, we must remember that Jesus lays proper claim over us and demands that we steward our lives for his glory. While our sinful inclination is to reject authority in our life in order to act in ways that benefit ourselves, we must remember that Jesus lays proper claim over us and demands that we steward our lives for his glory. For our kids, Jesus has the rightful authority to tell us exactly how we should live for him. Now, the context of what's going on here, the context of the parable, uh, we see beginning in verse uh, one of chapter 20, but I'm going to give you some background even before that, too. But right here, right off the bat, we see that Jesus is teaching the gospel in anticipation and preparation for his death and resurrection that's to come soon. And he's teaching the gospel on the heels of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey 
and then subsequently cleansing the temple of the corrupt money changers. So that's what's been happening. You go back to chapter 19, you see, um, and, and the previous chapter, you see Jesus riding in uh, for the triumphal entry, uh, Palm Sunday. He comes riding in, he's being worshiped and, and, and glorified and, and adored, and he comes into the temple and he cleanses the temple. He's casting out the money changers uh, for their corrupt robbery of the people. Uh, and then he's teaching from the temple. He's teaching with one uh, as one who has authority, and he's teaching the gospel, uh, the gospel that God made man to enjoy him, that God created us in his image to enjoy uh, him as our heavenly father. And, and we broke that relationship with sin. We deserve death. We deserve his punishment. And yet God sends Jesus to reverse that curse. And Jesus calls us to repent and to put our faith and trust in him. That's the message that gets interrupted. That's the sermon that's being preached, the gospel Jesus is communicating to this people. And, and the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, these, these people are gathered together and they begin to question his authority. They're seeking to deal with what they believe to be his extremism in their minds. Remember, he's come preaching an elevated standard even of understanding how to live the law out. Right? He's, he's called their abilities to do so uh, falling short of God's glory, that they are in unrighteousness, that they are not perfect. And so uh, they believe that he's teaching an extreme type of message, and they come to address it. Uh, they arrive to question his authority. Who are you to tell us to live this way? Who are you to, to make these claims? Who are you to do these things? Where do you get this authority but even as they come seemingly with this, um, this desire to stand on conviction and to, to, to take a stand against what they believe to be untrue, there's still all through this passage this, this, inner, this uh, understanding that they are tiptoeing around the people, right? That, that they're not really there to take stands on conviction. They're there to position themselves politically, Right? They don't want to lose the influence and power they have over the people, and so they're very careful about how they go about this process. They don't want to offend those who they're making their money off of. The Jewish leaders come with this question to discredit Jesus, to stifle his influence. They want to attack his right to teach and attack his right to require accountability for his message. Now, what's interesting is if you back up to Luke chapter 9, you find that Jesus anticipated this type of response from them. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, after Peter has, confesses, has confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the, the Messiah, uh, verse 22, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus lays out this timeline for his disciples well before he even gets to Jerusalem, right? He says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer many things. In fact, I'm going to be rejected by some of the greatest influencers in Israel right now. They are going to reject me. I am going to be killed. I'm going to be raised three days later, though, right? He's communicating this message. So there, there's nothing surprising that happens here in chapter 20. It's not surprising that the, the scribes and the elders and the uh, these influencers are coming and questioning Jesus about his authority, nor is it surprising that they don't get the point of the parable and repent. This is anticipated. God anticipates this. Jesus anticipates this. This is exactly uh, what, the, what the plan was laid out to be. This is exactly what was anticipated, this type of response. Shows that God is completely in control of what's happening in chapter 20. Now, I do think that as we read through this and we see this questioning of authority, it's a reminder to us as believers today that we still have similar tendencies towards authority in our own lives, right? This tendency to, to resist and question and reject authority. We're skeptical of authority. We question authority. We rationalize and excuse disobedience to authority. We long for new authority. This is, this is how we typically act towards authorities placed over us, right? We're, we're skeptical. We question it. We, we grumble and complain against it. We reject it. We resist it. We'll talk more about that as we get into the text, but um, that's, that's something that we can kind of see immediately as a direct application for us today, that yes, this was spoken to specifically a group of people over 2,000 years ago. These elders and priests and scribes that were um, antagonistic towards Jesus and his authority. 
He speaks the parable to them, but he's speaking to us 2,000 years later as well because we struggle sometimes with the exact same thing, a resistance to authority in our life. They come asking this question, where do you get this authority? Jesus counters with his own question, right? He says, I'll ask you a question. Reflect on John the Baptist. Tell me what you think about him. Tell me where you think his authority came from. Now, John the Baptist was a sticking point with the crowds and the leaders at that time. He was, he was a lightning rod. People liked him and people hated him. The people loved him. The leaders hated him. Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 in verse 29. It says, When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So you had people on both sides. You had the followers, the crowds who were on John the Baptist's side, listening to his message, repenting, believing, being baptized. But then you have the leaders, the influencers, the spiritual uh, direction for Israel, rejecting John the Baptist. Doing so passively, though, right? They don't put John the Baptist to to death, but they certainly support Herod, who does, right? Gets him out of the way. But they're being very political in how they approach everything. They don't want to lose their influence over the people. And so Jesus puts them in a really sticky spot because he says, hey, I'll tell you where I get my authority if you'll first tell me where you think John the Baptist got his. And they have to come together and, and have this conversation to where they basically deduce, if we admit that John the Baptist... Uh, is from heaven, that his message comes from heaven, that his authority comes from heaven, well, then we're admitting that we're wrong for not taking his baptism. We're admitting that Jesus is the Messiah because John says, here is the Lamb of God, right? So we can't, we can't say that his, his authority comes from heaven because then we're admitting that we're wrong. We also can't admit that we think it comes from man because we'll lose the crowd's support. Notice how they want to discredit Jesus, but they end up discrediting themselves, really. They are basically admitting that they can't tell the difference between truth and error from a prophet versus a man. They're unwilling to stand on convictions. If they truly believed Jesus was a fraud, they owed it to the people to expose him. But they were driven by politics and power and not truth. They were not servant leaders, which is what Old Testament Israel uh, was supposed to have. These these shepherd-type leaders that were servant leaders, Jesus being the ultimate servant leader. It's what pastors and elders are called to be today. People who are not self-interested, but are servant-minded towards their people. These people are selfishly interested in how they can manipulate things for their own benefit. They lead for themselves. Jesus says, well, then, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. And yet he does indirectly answer them by leading with this parable, the parable of what's sometimes called the wicked tenants. The parable becomes Jesus' indirect answer to their question and an indictment against their actions. Now, we've read through the parable. Let's look at the point of the parable. The point of the parable is, is that the influencers of Israel have neglected their responsibilities as stewards of God's kingdom in lieu of their own selfish agendas, have ignored the continued corrections from God by rejecting his messengers, and have ultimately revealed their desires to remove God's authority completely from their lives. That's the parable point. The point is to show that the influencers of Israel, these scribes, uh, these elders, these chief priests, they've neglected their responsibilities as stewards of God's kingdom. And they've neglected it with a focus instead on their selfish agendas. They've ignored the continued corrections. God has sent messengers to correct them, and they've rejected those messages. They've ultimately revealed, through the ending of this parable, their desire to remove God's authority completely from their life. They want him out. Now, who are the characters? Who's at play within this parable story? Well, hopefully you can read and kind of deduce from uh, just reading through the parable that the vineyard planter would be God the Father. The vineyard, from an Old Testament perspective, really pictures Israel as a nation being placed in the promised land and being provided for by God. If you go to Isaiah chapter 5, there's numerous passages. We won't read them all. I'll, I'll share with you some of the references that if you want to look up, you can uh, read some on your own. Um, some of the other ones that we won't look at, Psalm chapter 80, 
verses 8 through 16, Psalm 80, 8 through 16, Isaiah 27, 2 through 5, Jeremiah 2, 21, um, Ezekiel 19, 10 through 14, Hosea 10, 1. These are all passages that reference Israel as being God's vineyard. Isaiah 5 is another one. It says in verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what, will I, what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now this passage is talking about how Israel is established as God's vineyard, but they have not done what they're supposed to do. And so therefore God brings judgment upon them. What we see in this parable, fast forwarding to Luke chapter 20, is not specifically a judgment on Israel, but on the leaders of Israel who have failed in their part to carry out their responsibilities. The tenants are those influences of Israel that we've already seen, priests, scribes, elders. The servants that are sent to the tenants would be the prophets, the Old Testament prophets specifically. The son, obviously, is Jesus. So what we see here is that God established Israel as a nation, set up rulers to guide them, veiled his presence for a time because it talks about him going away into a far country for a long while. Now, his, it's his absence, his perceived silence, right? We even know that there's a, there's a 500-year gap between um, Old Testament and New Testament times, right? So there's this, this time of silence, and it leads the influencers to think that they have greater authority and God's approval due to his lack of judgment on them. Now, we've talked about this some in the parables already, and so once again, we'll, we'll mention it today, that the delay of God, the delay of Christ's return demands a response from us. Will we, be, will we continue to stay faithful to him as we wait for him? Right? These tenants are shown to be unfaithful as they wait for God to carry out his will, as they wait for God to bring his kingdom, they grow unfaithful. Will we be unfaithful as well? Now, we saw earlier in our parable study in uh, Luke chapter 12, another reference to this idea of waiting and then seizing authority for yourself. In Luke chapter 12, verse 45, talking about the, the, the master who has gone away and then comes back. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. The same idea is going on here in Luke chapter 20. These tenants believe that the vineyard owner has left and is not coming back. His delayed response gives a rise to their own authority in their life as though they can do what they want to do. I put in my notes, when you believe the master isn't returning, your claim to authority rises in your mind. When you believe the master isn't returning, your claim to authority rises in your mind. It's why we want to keep our focus here at Sovereign Hope always on the return of Jesus, because it keeps us faithful in the here and now. If we believe he's coming back, it keeps us fighting sin today, because we know he could come at any moment. But when you believe the master isn't coming back, you start to believe that you can seize authority. I don't know if you've ever had a situation like this, those of you that, that went to college, uh, where maybe you were sitting in a class and the teacher was delayed in coming and wasn't there when class was supposed to start, right? It's kind of it's normal at first. You know, students would continue to, to talk and kind of hang out. And then as it gets past, further past the time of the start of class, you would start to maybe have individuals within that classroom start to rise up and kind of seize power and say, hey, we don't have to stay. If the teacher's this late, we should, we should, we should be able to go. And you start to hear discussions amongst the, the, the classmates as to what, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to handle the teacher not being here? 
Now, if the teacher walks in in the middle of the discussion, it all stops, right? All of it stops. Everybody sits down. We're going to have class. No explanation needed for why the teacher has been delayed. But you see, like, as the time um, increases from when class was supposed to start, uh, there's this mindset that people start to rise up and think, like, hey, I have the authority now because the authority is not here. It's what we experience today as we wait for Jesus. If we're not careful, if we lose sight of the fact that he is coming back, we start to think that we have more authority over our life than we do. We start to think that we can live how we want to live as though he's not coming to hold us accountable. Now, again, this parable is spoken specifically to the Jewish leaders, right? We see this at the end of our passage today where it says uh, they seek to lay hands on him. Why? Because they perceived, they rightly perceived that he had told this parable against them. So the original hearers are the scribes and the Pharisees and the, the, the elders and the priests here. It's these individuals who have abused their power and abused uh, God's stewardship for their own personal gain. That's the original context of this parable being given. But as I said to begin with, I think that this has truth for us to embrace today too. 2,000 years later, this still speaks to us today and we need to let it speak to us. We need to have open and receptive hearts. We need to have soil in our hearts that's ready to receive God's word today so that we can respond to it. All right, let's jump in and see number one, be aware of your sinful inclinations. What this parable does and what this story does for us is it helps us to see our own sinful inclinations. We're inclined first to resist his authority. We are inclined to resist his authority. Like the Jewish leaders, like these Jewish influencers, we are prone to want authority and to question any authority placed over us. We have a a prideful desire to have authority and to question any authority that's placed over us, right? If you're honest with yourself, you find yourself feeling this way about all authority in your life. You you don't want it, you don't desire it, and you don't typically like it. You're prone to question it. You're prone to be skeptical of it. You're prone to to want to disobey it. Um, We're we're prone to certainly grumble and complain against it. Uh, And even when we don't necessarily want that authority, we certainly believe we could do it better if it was ever given to us, right? None of us probably know anybody, maybe some of you do, Most of us have never met anybody that seriously has aspirations of becoming the president of the United States, right? Most of us don't know anybody that is on a track, like, hey, I'm on a political track to become the president of the United States of America. We all know people who think they could be a better president than whoever is our current president at the time, right? You can sit and talk at work, you can talk at family gatherings, and you will, you will not be short of opinions about how the president should be doing things in our country at any given point, right? Now, nobody's going to stand up and say, give me that authority. Hey, I'd love to be the president of the United States. Most people are going to shy away from that, but most everybody's going to have a strong opinion about how they could do it better, right? I have teachers tell me all the time, I would never want your job. I don't know how you do it. I, I just don't know how you do it, Right? But I also get reports from teachers who constantly come to me and say, hey, there were a group of teachers talking about how they don't like what you're doing and they would do it differently, right? Nobody wants my job really, but everybody probably has a strong opinion about how they would do it differently if they were doing my job, right? That's our sinful inclination is to have a resistance towards authority that's placed over us. Even if we don't truly want the authority we resist, we still undermine it with our view that we could do it better questioning, complaining, doubting, and rejecting authorities must be viewed through the lens of God establishing authority in our life for us. Romans chapter 13. Man, be humbled by this and let this sink in in the context of what we're talking about. Romans 13, 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Man, we have a responsibility to submit to the authorities that God has given to us. Kids, you have a responsibility to submit to the parents that God gave you. Did you choose your parents? No. Do you get to set the rules in your house? Most likely not, right? God gave you the parents that he gave you for specific reasons. They are the authorities that have been given to you. Most of you didn't get to pick your teachers this year. 
Some of you, your teachers are still your parents, so we're talking about the same authorities. Others of you leave and go to school, and you have other teachers that you did not choose. They are your authorities. And we have a responsibility to submit to our authorities. These people come questioning Jesus' authority. And when we question any authority in our life like this, we would be questioning God's authority because God put authority over us. Be subject to the governing authorities. Our sinful inclination is to resist it, to question it, to complain against it, to doubt it, to grumble it. We need to be aware of that. Number two, we're inclined to reject his correction. We're inclined to reject his correction. These leaders, these influencers, their rejection is seen in their mistreatment of the prophets that come with a message from the vineyard planter. So going back to Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells this parable, a man planted a vineyard, let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Now remember, what sparks the parable? It's these people saying, Jesus, what authority do you have, right? What authority? We don't want to listen to your authority. Well, let me tell you this parable. Vineyard planter plants the vineyard, gives it to these tenants, gives them expectations, leaves for a while. Then when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants and they begin to beat these servants and send them back empty-handed. They don't respond to the message. They don't respond to any of the correction that comes from these messengers. It pictures the mistreatment that Israel gave to the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, if you look in Luke chapter 11, we don't always think necessarily of how the prophets were rejected. We went through the minor prophets uh, not that long ago, right? And talked about prophet after prophet that came with messages from God. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 45, look at how the, the Israelites particularly the leaders, treated these prophets. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also. Remember the lawyers at that time, experts in God's law. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering." Jesus says, you guys are responsible. Even though it was your fathers who killed the prophets, you are doing the same thing by rejecting their message. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is talking right before his stoning. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Right before he is stoned, it says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is the response of Israel towards God's prophets. They've rejected the message. They want freedom to take ownership of what has been given to them and to use it however they want. But don't just miss this in thinking that, oh man, yeah, he definitely needed to say this to these people because they were missing the point. They weren't, they weren't hearing the message of the prophets. We do the exact same thing when we come to God's word or we sit under the teaching of God's word and we fail to respond to it when we do nothing with what we've heard and we allow the enemy to come and snatch it from our hearts, we are guilty of the same thing. We're rejecting the message. We're rejecting God's truth. We're walking away unchanged just as they did. Spoken 2,000 years ago to a group of people who needed to hear it at that time, it's still spoken 2,000 years later to us who need to hear it as well. Jesus has authority over our life. His message has authority over our life. We must respond to it. Our sinful inclination, though, is to resist his authority, to reject his correction, right? We want to live the way we want to live, and when we're corrected from God's word, we want, to, we want to reject that too. That's what the parable is pointing out to the people at that time. Number two, 
Be humbled by God's active character. Be humbled by his active character. What do we, what do we know about God? Remember in Exodus 34, when, when Moses says, I want to see you. We, we talked about this, uh, particularly when we went through the minor prophets, about his, his long-suffering, his patience, his grace and mercy, right? Our God, our God, who's merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. That's the picture that we get, an abounding and steadfast mercy love of God as he continues to send messenger after messenger. He continues to pursue his people. Even though they keep beating them and wounding them and sending them back, he keeps sending messenger after messenger. God shows himself to be long-suffering in his patience. Long-suffering in his patience. His long-suffering love should be noted from the parable. He persisted in sending help. He just keeps coming. We sang about it today. His goodness is running after us, running after us, running after us. He continued to run after these people. Unless we think that it fell only on deaf ears. You read that passage in Acts where Stephen is crying out. Listen to the prophets. Listen to the message. The bulk of those people, they respond in hatred towards him and they stone him. The verse that I didn't read says they lay their garments at Saul's feet. It's Paul who's converted. It's Paul who's caught up in the scribes and the elders and the chief priests. He's thinking like they are, right? He wants to kill Jesus and he wants to kill the ministers of Jesus. And yet God's goodness continues to run after him. Imagine being Paul today if he was still alive, sitting in our worship service and singing that song. Who could sing it better? That God's mercy and goodness kept running after him. Even in the midst of this rejection, kept running after him. So some some responded. Some got it. Some heard the correction. And some were changed. We need to be humbled by God's active character towards us too. He shows long-suffering in his patience towards us. Number two, he shows himself to be lovingly sacrificial in his dealings with us as well. He continues to send his loving correction Finally, by sending his son who dies in our place. The vineyard owner says, I'm going to send my beloved son. Maybe they'll respect him. It's the same phrase used in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, when God the Father looks down upon his son at his baptism and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? He has sent his son on our behalf. He has sent him to save us. We need to be humbled by God's active character in this parable. Because if you're not careful, you read just the judgmental piece at the end, right? That this stone comes and it, and it uh, kills anybody who falls on it and it crushes anybody who doesn't stumble over it. And we'll get to that, and it's true. But don't lose sight of the fact that there is patience and long-suffering endurance where goodness is running after God's people all through this parable. It's still running after these people after they've dared to question his authority. Remember, they interrupt a gospel sermon to say, who gives you the right to say these things? Like, they should have been dead on on contact there, right? Like, the moment they started to voice that, God should have struck them dead. Like, you're interrupting the gospel message to question Jesus' authority, the creator of the universe, and he permits them to have a conversation with them, permits them to hear a parable, permits them to have the opportunity still to repent. His long-suffering patience should not be missed in this parable. His loving sacrifice of sending his son should not be missed. Number three, be submissive to his authority or else. We talk a lot about the sacrifice of the cross being a loving act by God to offer himself on our behalf. And that's absolutely true, right? The cross is a demonstration of God's love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it is also a heinous crime of the worst rebellion possible, a sinful act that warrants God's eternal wrath. And what we need to see is that we are God killers ourselves unless we repent. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, 
whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What the tenets are pictured doing here in this parable, rejecting God's messengers, rejecting God's messengers, killing the son, it's what our sinful hearts would do if given the opportunity as well, right? We can't remove ourselves from this situation and think we would have handled that better. As lost individuals, the Messiah shows up calling us to repentance and faith. Had it not been for the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we would have done the exact same thing. We would have killed him. We would have killed him in the name of wanting authority ourselves. We have to see ourselves as that. So there, there's some that may be sitting here today that have never put their faith and trust in Jesus. You've rejected his authority. You've rejected his message. You've lived the way that you've wanted to live. You've acted as a, uh, an owner of his vineyard rather than a steward of his vineyard. And he's going to come and, and demand accountability for it at some point. Jesus gives us the opportunity to repent and to turn to him. The cross is a loving act by him to offer himself on our behalf, but it is also a worst possible rebellion against him too. And he's coming to destroy the tenants. He's coming to bring judgment on those who have rejected his message, right? They, they kill the son, and then Jesus poses a question in the midst of the parable, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Right, the obvious answer is the answer that Jesus gives. If I were to tell this, this in, in, in our common language, and we didn't use vineyards, and we didn't use you know, the language that time, if I told you that, hey, there was this guy who built a business, right? And he turned it over to some, some, of, his, some of his friends. And he said, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm moving back to, to the north, and I'm going to leave you with this, with, this, with this business. I want you to run it, but I still get a cut from it, right? And so he sends some of his employees from up north down south to, to collect, and, and, and they're beaten, and they're sent back empty-handed, and they come back bloodied and bruised, and, and he continues to send messengers, and then he sends his own son, who's kind of the heir to his, his business, sends his own son, and, and he finds out that he's been murdered? And then we would say, hey, what would that owner do? Like, all of us would respond and say, well, he's going to come and, and bring justice to that situation, right? Jesus says, what's the owner going to do here? What's the, what's the vineyard owner going to do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others, give it to better tenants. But look what the response is from the people who hear it. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Surely he wouldn't do that. Like us as readers, we would say, surely he will do that, right? But think about like, like when we share the gospel even today. We, we understand the judgment of the parable. It's justice for sinners. Um, but many refuse to accept God's right punishment, right? The reaction of the leaders is the same reaction we see today. A loving God would not enact punishment like that. A loving God wouldn't judge sinners. That, that's what we hear today, that, that, that God will excuse sin, that he won't judge sin. It's contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to the gospel. Jesus says, I'm gonna judge this and I'm gonna take the vineyard away. Now, you can see, for those that are more history-minded, you can see that judgment's already come to Israel, kind of a phase one judgment, when the temple and the Israelite system fell in AD 70. Right when the temple was 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 def, was destroyed, Rome sacks Jerusalem, and and and, and the, the whole system is completely torn away. Right, the thing that they were holding on to and treasuring so much is stripped from them. That there is no more sacrificial system today. There is no more way for them to carry out these things that were so precious to them. God brings judgment, and He's going to bring further judgment when He comes to establish His kingdom. But, but he, he strips them of what was so precious to them, and he gives it to the Gentiles, right? We're the beneficiaries of this, right? He sets up a new system for how his kingdom functions. No more sacrifices, no more temple. The, the church begins to take off in the book of Acts, right? Now we see in Ephesians chapter 2, the idea of this cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens talking to the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Right, he's doing a new thing now. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Man, he strips it from them. He takes the vineyard away and says, we'll do it differently. Like, I'm going to bring the Gentiles in. Like It's going to be done totally differently now because of your rejection. Because the, the messengers were continually beaten, he says, I'm going to bring judgment. He started that already. Now, lest we think that we as Gentiles are protected as though we're more special than the Jews, man, Paul goes to great lengths in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to show that he is not done with Israel and he is not done with his people. And that we as Gentiles can forfeit our role there too. In Romans chapter 11, verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off, right? We don't grow boastful in the vineyard be expanding and the, the tenants expanding, right? We, we, we relish in his kindness. We relish in his mercy so that we too don't forfeit our place there. Jesus, as the cornerstone, should not be tripped over. They say, surely not. Surely, surely you wouldn't give the vineyard away. Surely you wouldn't come and bring devastation and destruction and judgment. Look what he says in verse 17. The implications of this verse are terrifying. He looked directly at them. Like none of us, to, 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 to our experiential piece, have had Jesus look directly at us. Right? He looks directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus stares at them and cites Psalm 118.22. That's where he's quoting from. It's the same passage that enraged these leaders in the chapter before. When he comes riding in and the people are quoting from Psalm 118, they stand up and say, Jesus, stop these people from saying this. Because what they're saying is that you're the Messiah. Jesus says, if I told him to be quiet, the stones would cry out. This is true. I am the Messiah. So he quotes from the same passage. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Luke chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. When, when Jesus is brought to the temple and Simeon and Anna are there, both of these passages talk about Jesus dividing people, some responding well to him, some not responding well to him, that he brings this, this division Right? Some people respond, some people don't. Some people trip over him, some people don't. He's the cornerstone. He should not be tripped over. We should not stumble over what he's telling us because we resist his authority. But number two, he is the ruling stone and he should not be ignored. Jesus says everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. So if we trip over him, we're exposed to him, we fall on him, we're broken to pieces. But it also uh, is pictured as he falls on anyone, 
and crushes them as well. It comes from Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of the statue made out of all kinds of different materials, represents all these different empires? What's the ending of that dream? This, this mountainous rock that comes in and crushes everything with its authority. And it grows and swells into this great kingdom that encompasses the earth. It's a picture of Jesus coming, right? Whether we trip over him or whether we're crushed by him at his return, he is coming to bring judgment. Whether you stumble and fall on him or he falls on you, the same destruction awaits. Jesus tells this parable to get their attention. He looks directly at them and tells them this. Staggering truth. And then 19 and 20 is just heartbreaking. Scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. What's crazy, and I don't think they intently do, I don't think they intentionally do this. What's crazy is that their direct response is to live out the parable. It's to, it's to fulfill it. It's to complete it. Just like we saw with the prodigal son, right, where, where, the, where the elder son who has seemingly been faithful and loved his dad, but we, we talked about how that wasn't accurately true. We said that the implication is that he kills his dad. The same happens here, right? The tenants kill the son to take the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus tells the parable and the people say, let's kill him. Let's kill the son. It's heartbreaking to see that type of rejection of his message. If we're not careful, though, we're guilty of the same type of rejection. From an application standpoint, some questions that I want to ponder, but I first want to, I want to share this that I put up in my notes. The people of God are built on the stone, while the enemies of God are broken on it. The people of God are built on the stone. The enemies of God are are broken on it. A parable that we weren't going to take time to look at because I've taught it previously when we were in Matthew comes from Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Man, that parable reminds us that the believer hears God's word, hears the message of God and builds his life on it. Does what Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do, you, why do you say you follow me and then reject my authority? They came saying, Jesus, where do you get your authority? Because we don't want to do what you tell us to do. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Believers build their life on the rock. Unbelievers, the enemies of God are broken on it. Number one, am I known as one who submits to his authorities in my life with grace and contentment or as one who resists and rebels? This is the message for us today, 2,000 years later, hearing this parable, hearing the context of the teaching. Do we submit to his authority rightly? Or do we question it? Do we rebel against it? Or do we, with grace and contentment, submit to him while also submitting to other authorities in our life? Number two, am I using the resources entrusted to me as a steward for his benefit and glory or as an owner for my own satisfaction? Think about the vineyard that's been given to you, right? Your life your, uh, your giftings, your resources, your family, your job, the things that have been bestowed to you, you don't own those things. Those are things that you possess temporarily as stewards. They've been entrusted to you to be used for his glory. Are you using them for his glory? Or are you squandering them? Do you think that, do, do you, think that you own it and get to do whatever you want to with it? For our, for our students, are you even contemplating what God wants to do with you after your time at school is done? Or do you think, hey, the, the world is wide open and I can do whatever I want to and I can live in freedom and do exactly what pleases me once I'm out from underneath my parents whose authority I'd love to reject if possible. Man, don't be like the tenants who viewed the vineyard no longer as something they were called to work for and to be stewards of. They began to see it as their vineyard and that they had the right to do whatever they wanted to with it. 
man, God has creator rights over us. We submit to his authority. Number three, am I listening well to the warnings I see in Scripture? Or do I walk away inadvertently fulfilling them? If you're not careful, you'll walk out today. You'll do nothing with the message, and you'll be just as guilty as these individuals who heard the parable and then went out and did the parable. Man, build your life on the message of God's word. Be like the wise man in Luke 6 who built his house on the foundation of the rock so that you don't trip over it and get crushed by it later. His loving kindness, his patience, it continues today because he hasn't returned yet. The opportunity to repent still exists. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for the truth of this parable. Thank you that you preserved it for us 2,000 years ago so that we could read it and hear it again today. Lord, challenge us in the way that we view our life. Lord, help us to see that we are not the owners of our life. That the decisions that we make aren't separate from your authority. Lord, help us to fight the sinful inclinations in our heart that while we may never vocalize it, internally, we're prone to say, who gives you the authority to tell me what to do? Who gives you the authority to tell me how to live and and act with my friends? Who gives you the authority to, to define the ways that I talk to others? Who gives you the authority to demand that I forgive when I've been hurt? Who gives you the authority to tell me to live my life in purity? To withhold satisfaction from myself, potentially, for the sake of your name. Who gives you the authority to demand my life be lived for you? Lord, our our, our hearts are inclined to think that way. Forgive us, convict us, change us. Lord, you changed Paul, who was caught up in the midst of this group, who was rejecting you and, and killing your people. You saved him. Your goodness kept running after him. Lord, we know your goodness is still running after us today. And Lord, I pray that for those in this room who have never repented, who are still tripping and stumbling over the message that they've heard for for a good portion of their life, maybe students that are sitting here who have heard it from mom and dad, who've heard it from Sunday school teachers and Christian school teachers and, and friends and neighbors and family members, and they've continued to reject it, Lord, help them to stop stumbling today so that a day doesn't come in the future where they're crushed by you. Lord, help them today to hear the message and to build their life on the rock. Lord, help us not to reject the cornerstone. Pray that you change us and convict us where we need it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.